to the Radical Reverend Show, of course, as always, recording off-site. Uh, but that doesn't mean that CIUT 89.5 FM isn't so important. And you'll hear the show there Mondays, of course, between 4 and 5. You can also catch it on whatever podcast you tune into. Uh, please feel free to share. And talking about sharing, it is that time at CIUT, so if you feel free to share, do share something with the only alternative radio station left in existence in our city. Today, the first of many queer panels because da-da-da-da, it's Pride Month. Uh, so uh, we're welcoming uh, Andrea Houston, not uh, new to this show, but she hasn't been on for a while. Uh, she's now the executive assistant to Jill Andrews, one of our faves at Queen's Park. And uh, of course, you know her as a journalist all over the place for Extra, et cetera, an activist, uh, Rainbow Railroad with a lot of organizations. So welcome, Andrea, to the Radical Reverend Show. Thanks, Sherry. Always a pleasure. And uh, Adrienne, welcome for the first time to the Radical Reverend Show. So it's such an honor to have you Thank on, you. podcaster in your own right. Uh, she is a Canadian fashion designer in 2015, began contributing to Huffington Post and is an advocate for supporting our youth organization. And so welcome, welcome to the Radical Thank Reverend you. Show. And Thank of you. course, uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Sherry DeNovo in my day job before I put on the like super radical reverend outfit, you know, to become this different kind of superhero. Um, so that's what I do. And I'm at Trinity St. Paul's, uh, of course, which is where you can reach me. So first of all, let's talk about the events of the last week. Boy, oh boy, we, uh, I, I mean, I, I, what summed it up for me and what I'm gonna be preaching about on Sunday in part was Gigi's words, uh, George, Floyd, uh, George Floyd's daughter who said, my daddy changed the world. And it's such an incredible, powerful, positive six-year-old spin on what mm -hmm. has been happening and I, I really hope that we can make that true, that this is what's changing the world. Certainly we're seeing the outpouring into the streets of everyone. Um, we're seeing in amplification, um, police brutality and beyond police military brutality and the brutality, let's lay the blood at their footsteps of, of politicians and governments um, because mm -hmm. that's where it starts. What do queers have to do with that? Um, so we're going to take a queer angle on this. How do we, um, how do we in Pride Month, uh, deal or or make make sense of this? Andrea, I'm going to start with you. Great. So well, you know, police and police issues uh, are are no stranger to to the queer community. Obviously, this goes this is part of our history um, as queer and trans communities. You know, going back to the very beginning. Um, when uh, those incredible youth, uh, mostly youth, many uh, trans women of color, uh, fought back against police violence uh, at Stonewall in 1969 in New York, and of course here in Toronto um, with the bathhouse raids in 1981. But you can even look at uh, 
uh, at incidents more recently. You know, we look at, uh, you know, incidents with, you know, the police sting in the park uh, on the West End, the Marie Curtin's Park. Uh, we look at, you know, many of the uh, acts of violence against activists uh, fighting HIV AIDS in, in the 80s and 90s. So, you know, police interaction with queer, queer and trans communities is certainly not new. Uh, trans women, uh, trans women of color, trans people generally, um, sex workers uh, are criminalized and, and face enormous barriers with regard to reporting violence and, and uh, reporting violence with police interactions. Um, from, you know, LGBTQ people experiencing mental health issues, um, uh, frequently uh, complain and express concerns about their interactions with police, um, that uh, police just are unable to diffuse or de-escalate situations and they don't come equipped with the right skills and tools to be able to interact uh, compassionately with queer and trans communities. Um, so all of that said, you know, we even just have to look at the recent history with Pride and, and some of the action and some of the, the demands with regard to Black Lives Matter Toronto, some of the really true um, concerns um, that uh, that, that uh, queer and trans communities experience every day. I mean, I hear from people that I know and, and friends of mine, sex workers, who say that they just won't participate in Pride because of the, the fear that police, you know, the, the same officers that are marching next to them in the parade wearing beads and yelling happy Pride are the same people who will turn around and, and arrest them or arrest their clients. So we have a long history that we are contending with. So police, you know, uh, awareness around police violence and pride and queer and trans communities um, are very much intersected. Adrienne, what do yes. you think? Yes. Yeah, I just, I think that, um, I mean, I've been walking the trans march for the past like five years. And I think that it's really great that Black Lives Matter has been sort of leading the march the past couple of years. Um, I think that it's, I mean, I was walking in the Black Lives Matter March last week in Toronto, and, you know, I did have a little bit of anxiety of whether or not there would be, like, a lot of queer people there. Um, I think that it's completely understandable for a lot of young queer people, especially Black and um, uh, queer people of color, um, to be really concerned for their safety, concerned about whether or not the city has them in best interest. Um, you know, I think people tend to forget that, especially, you know, trans women that are going through transition, it's a very um, vulnerable and um, a vulnerable time in general, absolutely. But I don't know, it's like, it's really hard to unpack. I mean, this is a very loaded, you know, a very loaded topic. Um, but I definitely think that uh, there isn't enough conversation about the vulnerability of, of queer people of color, queer people in general, um, and how we handle um, sort of this type of conflict that's going on. It's, um, it, yeah, it is complicated. I, I think of some of the demands that have come out of Black Lives Matter. We're going to talk about the mainstream media's coverage of all this a little later, but um, you know, one of them, one of them that very clearly has come out, I think of, of Des Cole and others who have voiced the Sandy Hudson, um, 
to defund the police forces. Now, I, I'm just going to back up a bit with this lens on it and say that I, you know, we all remember, I'm sure, very clearly. Um, in fact, in Dyke Day, I was marching right behind uh, this a couple of years back, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, when they made the demand uh, in Toronto. Um, that police not march in uniform. And then Pride said, okay, great. And I, I tweeted out at that point, proud of Pride. The backlash I got from the police was unbelievable. Um, and especially, and Andrew will know this, especially in light of the fact that for five years I fought at Queen's Park to get PTSD covered as a workplace injury, which included police. Um, so, so, yeah, um, and now we're seeing in the States police on knee, you know, um, some police marching with, um, but, you know, then you're getting the other feedback. Well, yeah, they took the knee for a while and then they re-engage, whatever. Um, it's complicated, right? So, Andrew, I'm going to throw it back to you. Should we defund the police? I know that for most people who aren't like close to the ground in queer communities or in racialized communities, think, what are they thinking? This is like anarchy would ensue. It could maybe unpack that demand a little bit. And, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the cops, many of whom we have to say are people of color and many of whom are queer. So Andrew, to yep. you. Yeah, no, uh, I think uh, when you, you have to look at police in two separate lenses, right? There's the individual police lens, which individually, uh, there's absolutely LGBTQ cops, and there's great, there's really wonderful uh, police officers. I, uh, I think of Danielle Botno, who's, you know, the LGBT liaison for, for Toronto. You know, she has been uh, incredible uh, at, at sort of, you know, being that liaison between two communities. But it's really important with this issue to look at it from a systemic point of view and from a systemic lens and that systemically uh, police as an institution are extremely racist. I mean, it just goes through the history, right? And you have to understand the history of how policing were even created both in Canada and the US, um, you know, to police indigenous bodies, to police black bodies and to essentially uphold capitalism and to, you know, essentially serve and protect profit-making. Um, obviously that's not, that's not the only role of police, but I think when we talk about you know defunding police and and you know kudos to Sandy Hudson as you mentioned who you know in less than a week has succeeded to put this on on the mainstream agenda in Canada um, and, and we're also seeing it in the U.S. You know activists this has been a call from activists for a long long time, um, but it's only been in the last week I would say that we are seeing you know this being discussed on the national on on you know mainstream mainstream CBC radio, uh, television. So, you know, but I think when we when we really start to unpack it, you know, I think what we really need to look at is, you know, how we reallocate these funds, you know, instead of, you know, and, and Sandy uh, articulated this really beautifully the other day is, you know, when we look at, you know, what police actually do and, you know, some of the, some of the roles that police have and, and the fact that they aren't doing those specific roles very well at all and in fact in, in many cases they're making the situations worse and causing more violence causing more death um so for example mental health you know why are police the first people to respond to a mental health crisis why are they the first people to respond 
in, in uniform with guns uh, to a domestic violence situation. Why don't we maybe think about reallocating some of those funds to a separate body? We can even create that body completely brand new of you know, trained social workers, trained professionals who are trained in de-escalating violence, who um, are who have lived life experience and they can, you know, potentially, you know, create, you know, a, a, a much more holistic type of, you know, um, information transfer and, and policies and, and, you know, best practices to, to that we aren't even thinking about now. I just think we need to rethink how we do policing. Absolutely. There will always be a role for, um, you know, violent crime investigators, people who are trained uh, tactically to, to respond to uh, both domestic and international crime. Without question, we need that. Um, but I think that, you know, when we look at the police budget, particularly in Toronto, we're talking about billions of dollars, you know, where housing doesn't get that. Arts and culture don't get that. You know, we we we've seen police budgets in Toronto and elsewhere balloon, um, where uh, you know other other areas just don't have any funding at all, and or, or or their funding is being reduced or scaled back. So I think that that is where we need to start steering the conversation. Um, yeah, defunding police is a great rallying call at protests, but how it works out in 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 a policy factor, I think it's more, more using the term reallocating and, you know, we could potentially really get some movement on this, Sherry. Like this is, as you know, this is something that activists have been asking for a long time. And there has never been a moment when we can actually have this discussion on a, in a mainstream like now. Yeah, just to uh, add uh, what Andrea was speaking about, uh, uh, certainly I know that Victim Services of Toronto, for example, um, that runs itself on mainly volunteers and is always scrambling for money, never has enough, sends those volunteers out or should be if they can and they have the resources on those domestic calls along with police officers. I mean, it, it's not that difficult to imagine them getting a little bit more money <laughs> to do what they're already doing sure. in part. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, Adrian, I'm going to uh, throw this to you um, and, and just, uh, you know, weigh in here. Um, uh, so defunding police, I know that, you know, uh, when you just say those words, um, uh, especially if somebody's been victimized, not necessarily by police, and and here is just to play, you know, perhaps, you know, um, I don't, I don't wanna say devil's advocate, that's maybe over the top, but, uh, but, but on the other side to say, you know, I often hear complaints from people in the village in Toronto saying, when we called the cops, when we needed the cops, they weren't there. And the cops response is, yeah, well, guess what was going on? We're, we're short staffed, there are less police now per numbers of people than ever. So we need your wisdom. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I hang out, uh, at Glad Day quite often on Church Street in the village in Toronto. And, um, you know, there's a very diverse community there. Um, I think that there's a lot, I mean, I grew up a very privileged, like light-skinned East Asian person going to private school in Hamilton. And then, you know, moving to Toronto, there's such, um, you know, and especially spending time at Glad Day, you know, from my perspective, you know, it's like, I can see, um, I mean, as a person of color, I can absolutely see the fear in any person, like like any sort of kerfuffle that would happen in the village. Um, absolutely, there is, 
um, a concern of your own, like, will they have my, again, like me in best interest? Um, so something I did notice, I mean, I think we were both at the trans protest the, um, that, that couple, a couple months ago, I think. Um, and I saw, you know, I saw that police were offering like their police escort, like they were offering to escort the protesters. And I just saw such like, like paradox, such contradiction because like, you know, I, I, there were so many trans people of color I knew that did not feel comfortable with that at all, bottom line. And when we talk about defunding the police, um, and my, you know, my back, my corporate background, um, I, I just, I know how much money some of these, you know, budgets, like I know that some of these companies, let alone government budgets are very big. And like, we also have to forget that so, we have to remember that, that so many things in Canada have been defunded. <laughs> and so many, like, I mean, let's just talk about like hormone, like coverage of the, for the province and under 27, and that was taken away. I mean, there's so many things that have been defunded that have, you know, that have like, you know, which is a proof of how the system of oppression still very much exists is fundamentally ex like existing and is unfortunately not prioritizing uh, marginalized folks, especially black people. So I just think that like, there needs to be some type of, I think like an emotional conversation with institutions like Toronto police departments. There needs to be an emotional conversation about fear. And the thing is that no one really wants to talk about these hardly, you know, these, these are actually like harder conversations to have because they're quite vulnerable, I think. So, it, I mean, that's just one layer of complexity. No, of course. Um, and, and I'm thinking, um, you know, in terms of, of Toronto Place, I mean, I, that conversation has presumably been happening. Um, and, you know, we've all been um, privy to it happening in various contexts, you know, around the demonstration you were alluding to. Um, you know, I was at City Hall, I was meeting, you know, the police were always present, talking about what the response would be to this, you know, Christian right-wing crazy um, demo. Um, and, and we're kind of welcomed into that conversation. Um, uh, and yet, yeah, in none of those forums that I've been part of, and I don't know, Andrew, you may experience this differently, at none of those forums where we were, was the voice heard, the Sandy Hudson, Des Cole voice heard, do you know what I mean? Of, um, and and I, I think, you know, we were all trying to like work together and work it out. And um, and the sad reality is, I'm sure that same conversation has been happening in a lot of those American cities too. Um, and yet at the end of the day, it's a paramilitary organization, the police. And when you're sergeant or when you're commander, where you know the chief of police tells you to jump, you jump, because that is the training involved. Um, and and we and we kind of have to get that looking at the from the outside in, but also from the inside out. Like also, at what point um, do you say no? Yeah. You know? um, and that's a big. That's you know your pension and your paycheck. It brings up education as well. That like, why are we not talking more about colorism as well? Like, why aren't institutions talking about colorism, not just racism, but talking about like literal, like our literal colors of skin, like giving us privilege um, and inherently 
um, prioritizing certain kinds of people. I think it's really hard for institutions to like have these conversations. But the question is that I think we are capable of having these conversations uh, and talking about colorism as well and talking about like fundamental things that people of color experience and like why can we not implicate these into conversations of like the highest accord in institutions why can't we have these conversations without it being like due process and like talking you know like, and being so nice the four-letter word um exactly. I, I i just before i get to you andrea i just wanted to uh, point out something that yes you know um one of the th most hopeful signs i saw coming out of last week from the states were the police that did take part that did take the knee in earnest and did not said no um, because we know, and I'm just thinking about revolution here and capitalism, we know that every successful systemic change, um, real change in governments, um, you know, in other countries has absolutely happened when the military says no, when the police say no, that when they turn their guns away, right? Um, you, you actually kind of in a kind of weird way, need them. I mean, I think of Chavez in Venezuela, where you he actually armed people in the barrios. You know, you know, came out of the military. Like, so there is some hope there. So, Andrew, going to throw it back to you. How do we? How does that happen? Um, how do we like at one side say you know um, defund the police, on the other side say, uh, and if you're going to be a police person, like walk with us or be on our side like how do we navigate that andrea i think we have to do it with a really critical eye <laughs> um you know i think that you know we, we when we look at the the images of the police who took a knee or the ones who you know mar started marching with protesters um i think that i'm, I'm maybe i'm cynical maybe but I, I i see it as you know a little bit of PR, a little bit of propaganda. You know, I, I mean, there, there probably is people who are doing that, that we're, we're doing it with the best intentions, but you know, what would be really transformational, what would actually be revolutionary is for them to be calling out publicly um, and making those, you know, much needed changes from the inside. And if they, if those changes, or if they're being stonewalled, if those changes aren't happening, then quit. And, and ab absolutely, as you said, Sherry, they need to sacrifice those personal um, safety nets, those, those, the, you know, those pensions and that, and that salary. And, and, and I, it's a huge ask. It's a lot to ask of, of, of somebody to do that, you know, police is one of the most secure jobs there is. You, it's it, it's near impossible, um, arguably impossible, to be fired from uh, from from uh, as a police officer. So, you know, the taking of the knee and and the marching, you know, it's it, I, I I very much look at it with a critical eye because it does feel a bit propaganda to me. Um, you know, I. I one of the big things that they could do is, is is asking for their own budgets to be reduced, saying no to tanks and, and militarized equipment, not having these kinds of, uh, you know, uh, walls of, of, you know, paramilitary police, you know, bearing down on, on unarmed people and peaceful protesters, you know, people, act, police officers from the inside actually speaking publicly, that would be revolutionary in my mind. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, with regard to funding or with regard to, you know, police and, and, and you know, speaking up and being revolutionaries within their own force, I think we'll have to ask ourselves what kind of city and, and society we want to have, right? You know, we can, we can take money away from police budgets and it not even impact them whatsoever. 
whatsoever. They're, you know, the, the, the essential day-to-day -day operations of being a police officer would not change one bit um, if they were to, you know, be, have one less tank, you know, within their arsenal, you know, and, and instead we reallocate those funds to helping people to, you know, the majority of police uh, policing that's done is is policing of poverty, right? It's it's people who, who it's communities that are you know largely black and brown and indigenous who have you know institutionalized you know poverty that that is is they're drowning in and they can't get out of. You know, let's invest in in these communities. Let's invest in education. Let's invest in healthcare. Let's invest in housing. And you know. Bring in universal, um, universal UBI if, if if that's what will make it. You know, we saw before Doug Ford canceled the program. Of course, we saw great things happening with that. It'd be great to have that data, and we're seeing uh, jurisdictions around the world that are that are you know implementing universal income and, and and having great success with it. You know, so much of the mental health issues that we see that police respond to um, are, are purely poverty based, right? That, that if we if we if we fix the poverty problem, the crime will probably go away as well. Um, many, you know, the activists in the U.S. have been listening to a lot of them, what they've been saying, and, you know, it, it makes so much sense that, you know, police are causing a lot of the crime. And if the police weren't there, you know, the crime would probably go away by itself. Uh, we don't see these kinds of, you know, um, you know, paramilitary operations in white upper class communities. You know, we don't see um, white collar or the billionaires who are stealing from us every single day. We don't see them being policed. Why aren't the billionaires who are, you know, having all the money in, in tax shelters? Why aren't we coming down on that and using our funds for that? That would produce, if we were to even just stop tax shelters, we would be able to have enough money to inject in these communities, to lift them out of poverty, uh, and then police won't have to uh, send in paramilitary to police them. So there's lots we can do. Yeah, thanks, Andrea. Uh, so if you've just tuned in, you're listening, of course, to the Radical Reverend Show. I have with me um, Adrienne. Adrienne or Adrienne? Oh, it's Adrienne. Okay, <laughs> and uh, Andrea, the two A's, the A team uh, here on the first queer panel that's going to become uh, a regular panel on this show uh, during Pride Month, of course, uh, we're talking of the events of last week. Um, I, I think we can, I'm gonna move on from talking about police and their function. Uh, I just thought of this great Bertolt Brecht uh, quote where Brecht said, you know, what is the robbing of a bank next to the foundation, founding of a bank in terms of, uh, in terms of crime? Uh, moving on from there, um, uh, but before we leave the events, uh, the anti-racist events of last week, um, and of course the brutality of last week from the state, um, let's talk about mainstream media coverage of this because uh, to me, it's been outrageously bad, but maybe that's just me. Um, what we're used to seeing is a focus on the violent looter demonstrators. Um, what we haven't been seeing as much of for sure are the violent police uh, and tactical team responses uh, and instigations of that. Um, it's been done without any kind of kind of analysis. I, I, I thought of one particularly bad moment. I'll focus on Canadian media here for a second. But when when the greatest quote of the week, as I said, you know, my daddy changed the world of the six year old little girl, Gigi, CBC had to put in the fact that George Floyd didn't live with her as if that means anything. To me, that's pure racist 
commentary. Um, and, and what's interesting about it is I tweeted out about that and, and, and somebody tweeted, retweeted and said, you know, I love my grandchildren. I don't live with them. There's nobody else on earth I love more. I mean, this is just a standard kind of, you know, human response. Um, well, there you go. But I mean, what do you think? Um, Andrew, I'm going to go to you first only because you, you well, you're both media folks. So anyway, like just some comments, some brief comments maybe before we move on from this. Andrew. Yeah, I think it's been all over the map for me. I, I completely concur with what you were saying, Sherry, but I've also been, you know, watching some great coverage on Democracy Now! And I've been seeing some well, amazing, mainstream, you know, yeah. No, that is good point. They're not mainstream. No, you're right. They're right. I wish they were mainstream. Um, but I mean, I think CBC has had uh, some highs and lows, right? And I watch CBC a lot. And I, I, I switch back and forth between CBC, CNN, MSNBC, CTV. So I, I, I do a lot of bouncing around. And, and you do, it, it, it's highs and lows. I think that, you know, what we saw a few days ago with uh, one of the panels, I believe it was the power panel with, with Vashi Capello, they had Stockwell Day on. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I had I, I did that exact expression that you just did, hands on the head, like head was going to explode as he was speaking, you know, denying systemic racism and sadly not being really called out by the host, which was really a little disappointing. Um, there was one black person on, on the panel and, you know, her, her, the facial expressions on her face was just gold. But, you know, really, I mean, why is it always up to the one token black panelist or one token indigenous panelist or Asian panelist to have to explain to these, you know, white conservative men largely what racism is and what systemic racism means and you know why can't you know this he should not have been on the panel at all and i and i appreciate that now he has resigned from his commentator gig at cbc and resigned from all his 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 boards and that and you know we're seeing a wave of these you know people making these largely white men making these dumb statements um and uh, you know unless they're elected to office resigning from boards it's, it's just ridiculous, right? Like, you know, the, the, we shouldn't even have their voice on these panels. You know, the, we don't need a contrarian voice to, de to deny racism. We just want, you know, experts and people with lived experience to talk about issues. I don't need to see them battling about it, right? We're past that. We don't need racism defined or to, is Canada racist? Of course it is. Yeah. This is not a debate. Yeah. I, 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 yes, can you chime in, Adrian? <laughs> no, it just like it reminds me of, I mean, it makes me think about a generational divide as well. I mean, I uh, I was born in 1990. You know, I, I would consider myself like a second generation millennial. And I, I'm, I'm realizing a lot of my friends are like way younger than me. I want to say like 20 years old. And I'm learning, I'm personally learning from them, even younger people, that like their shift is so much like not, like their understanding is so aware of, Late stage, late stage capitalism and systemic racism that they don't even have an interest in mainstream media and so much there's a, so much like there's so much of a shift in like creating your own community creating your own networks like like only listening to your own like groups of people that understand and looking using social media um, but and again of course like mainstream media like CPC have been posted on you know they have their own social media but I definitely think that I see a, a, a massive shift in young people commenting and making themselves a part of the media as well and yeah I mean uh, what Andrew just mentioned I mean these panels that happen it, um, 
I, I feel as if there's, again, we tend to forget there's inter intergenerational differences as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think you're so right. I mean, I, it, it, one of the things I tweeted out about it is that, you know, you know, people decry the use of, of social media for news in a sense, but quite frankly, <laughs> that's where I'm getting most of my news. And I'm not young. That's where I'm getting most yeah. of my news because I don't trust because I look at mainstream yeah. media and hold my head and think, what are they talking about? Yeah. I look at the images that are shown and think, why those images and not, you know, turn the camera around, look at the cops, yeah. right? Just turn the camera around for a minute. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's problematic. Let's move on because the other, of course, um, what a year, right? 2020, wow. Um, let's look at COVID. Only June. Oh, I, know. I know. It's like it's like it's almost. I, I hate to say it, but it's almost biblical. It's like where are the falling toads? You know, next. But anyway, um, COVID. Murder hornets. That's, we had our hornets. That's right. That's right. Um, so COVID, the pandemic. Um, and, and one of the things that jumps out at me again, um, I guess a, a allusion to mainstream media too, um, but this all this talk, because I'm also in touch with frontline healthcare workers, well, let's talk about reopening everything, right? So I, a two, and everybody's sort of acting, like I went for a long walk yesterday and it was like, it was like nothing was wrong. Like most people I saw weren't wearing masks. Yeah. Lots of breaking of the social distancing rules. I was a lot of, you know, having to walk into the street to avoid people and stuff. And, I, and I'm thinking it's, it's almost as if there's been a signal given, oh, it's, it's okay now, it's, it's over, we're going to start back to normal. And then you see the figures of the cases, and they're still the same. Hundreds of new cases in Ontario uh, and Toronto yes. being the epicenter of that. Um, so, you know, again, for queer folk who are suffering like people of color, more than the rest of us. And of course, that's another topic is, you know, we were seeing the hot spots when they, they showed this diagram of the GTA, guess where the hot spots for COVID are? All of the poorer neighborhoods, right? Like, mm -hmm. so you know, that's what's happening. And the other aspect of reopening is, does this mean all the people with the crappy jobs, frontline jobs who are risking their lives have to go back for, you know, minimum wage? to risk their lives. Basically, that's the other message I'm hearing. What are you hearing and <laughs> with the reopening? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, same thing. Um, I, I'm very concerned about this. You know, the first wave of the reopening, if you remember, was, you know, a lot of things that really rich people wanted, right? You know, it was, it was golf courses, it was marinas, so people could take their boats out. It was, it was stable, so people can go visit their horses and ride and, and ride their horses. It was, it was cleaner, so people wanted the help to return. And, and it, it was very, very filtered through this extremely privileged lens. You know, and as you just said, you know, the people who are bagging our groceries, the people who are delivering our packages, the people who are, they haven't stopped working. And they're working for minimum wage and, and less than what was originally promised them because Doug Ford rolled that back when he was elected. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we like to, we've heard a lot of, at Queens Park, there's a lot of talk about, you know, um, heroes, and these are heroes, and, you know, applaud the heroes, but we don't pay them, we don't 
give them that respect because they're, you know, we don't let them unionize or we do, their, their employers do everything possible to prevent them from unionizing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the reopening is, is, is far too early when we, as long as we're seeing, you know, infections spike, we should not be reopening anything. Um, you know, I, I think that we need to continue to listen to public health and they're, and they're telling us that it's happening too fast. Um, you know, we, and you know, this is, this goes back to, to, to capitalism, right? There's no other reason to, to, um, to reopen early other than people want to make money. They want to continue to, to profit make. Small businesses should be compensated for the rent that they need to keep it going. There should be not a single small business that closes. All of that should be funded by, 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 the governments, all three levels of government should be kicking in for this. The city should not be going bankrupt, which is what they are. They're, 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 they're in a desperate situation and, and talking about major cuts to things like TTC and, and you know services that we use every day. Um, why can't we talk about a wealth tax? Why can't we talk about you know, imposing financial penalties on, on, on the wealthiest, most richest corporations among us? Everybody should be paid to stay home. The government is telling us to stay home for to keep ourselves and our loved ones and our community safe. That needs to come from the funding needs to come from them. And, and you know, we need to look at progressive taxes to fund it. Uh, yes. Adrian. Yes. I, I, you know, this is uh, it's, it's hard because uh, I think. I mean, I, I wouldn't consider myself a young person. I'm 30. I mean, I don't look 30, but I'm, I'm 30. And uh, I, I feel as if social isolation for a lot of young people in this country is extremely anxiety-inducing. That, that it has been... A lot of young people didn't, have never gone through this in their history. I mean, I know my father had. My father fled a dictator, you know, fled China and moved to Hong Kong and came here. I mean, like I older like older people I know absolutely. Um, this has this type of pandemic. I think um, there's a little bit of familiarity, but for young people like myself. I think that isolation, especially when I think of so many of my friends that live alone, like myself, it's mm. extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult to be socially isolated, especially when you don't have a good like relationship with your parents. So, I, 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 you know, we, we saw what happened last week with Trini Bellwood's thing and John Tory was like, hanging out in Trini Bellwood, like drinking a beer. Like you saw that photo it was completely like, it was a little bit comical to look at it. He was like talking without a mask and everyone was like partying basically. Like objectively speaking though, as, as irresponsible as that behavior was, objectively speaking, we have to also remember that again, it's like these are young people that are craving connection. And I almost wish that there had been like a buddy system announced or some type of like exceptions or some type of reassurance at least that we aren't just going to like be alone forever. You know, like when young people hear self-isolation, they're here, I'm going to be alone forever. Like I, the government's going to arrest me for being with anyone. So I think there could be de definitely a better communication in how things were handled.
Yeah. yeah. And, and also to your point, I'm thinking of the elderly too, who are yeah. many of them in retirement homes, many without even a balcony who are stuck in their rooms, things are delivered to the door, but they're not as, you know, everybody's got a steep learning curve in terms of technology since this, of yeah. course, we've had to, but, um, but I mean, many of them I, I can't access through, you know, through a computer. So they're really alone and really, kind of yeah. feeling it and scared also I have to say if mm. something's health something health-wise goes wrong scared to leave you know too and to go into a hospital where it might get worse right you know so yeah a lot of that a lot of isolation and and I I hear that um and what was interesting in a sense just to go back to, to the you know demonstrations for a while is there were a number of people I know quite frankly, including me, who were concerned about joining in the demonstration because we're in high risk groups um, and thought, you know, just like everybody, most people wore masks, but some did not. And social distancing was impossible or virtually impossible the way it was organized. So yeah. you, we, we signal boosted and did stuff, but we felt like it's scary. It's scary to go there. You're going to risk your life for, you know, this. I mean, I, so, uh, and not just your life, but then everybody you come in contact with, um, yes. whatever happens to you. So, yes. so is that kind of, yeah, no, I hear you. And thank you for problematizing it. By the way, again, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show, we're here with uh, Adrian, Adrian. I'm going to call her all sorts of things in this hour, Canadian <laughs> fashion designer, contributor to Huffington Post and advocate for supporting our youth and uh, journalist extraordinaire, activist, uh, EA to Jill Andrews, Andrea Houston. Andrea, weigh in on this generational and, you know, uh, we, we get, we're not supposed to social be distant but that's easy for us to say if we're living with somebody we like and we've got a backyard and yada yada etc weigh it got a got a pet or something got a dog I mean I, mean, I, I I'm I feel very privileged that I have a um, an, an apartment uh, quite airy you know not a balcony but a but a nice door I can look look out to a park I have a I have a dog and a cat and a partner but yeah, I, I I feel for people who are living alone. I, I I remember what it was like to be to be single, and and you know we weren't under lockdown then, and and, and it was isolating then. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, <laughs> and, and I I remember um, I remember you know that that craving for human connection, mm. right? That you know that craving for for you know just to be around friends. I mean, I miss hugging my friends. Yeah. You know, I haven't I I have friends who I haven't had you know I, I haven't hugged I haven't seen my dad in in uh, in a very long time because it was about it was months before the pandemic even hit <laughs> so i there's you know i i totally feel that and like you said sherry the seniors who are in uh retirement nursing homes uh who are terrified because of the news that you know that you know it's obviously the epicenters of the virus um and and you know just the you know the sheer um you know, almost brutality um, against them. Some people are just being left to die. Um, you know, well, well, you know, some of the staff who work at these homes, you know, they work like three or four different homes and juggling different jobs. And many of them are, you know, migrant workers who, you know, who are scared themselves and scared of being deported. I mean, there's so many, there's layers upon layers upon layers of issues. You know, we look at what's going on in Quebec and, and many of the people who, who are, you know, uh, staff at these, at some of these nursing and retirement homes, they're, they're, they're migrant workers um, who are, who are already living with unbelievable racism <laughs> against them, you know, from the, from just, you know, months ago, from, 
from the Quebec government telling them they can't cover up their faces and now they have to cover up their faces. So, you know, we have these, you know, uh, the the remnants of racist messaging from the past is coming is coming to bite uh, people uh, now now that we need to wear masks for our yeah. health. Let's 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 go back. I want to go back to Adrian for a minute because she, you you touched on something, um, uh, and I want to touch on this because we're a queer panel on the on healthcare under COVID too. For um, so for example, um, and I think. You know, I think there's for sure to Andrea's point a lawsuit, and there should be, and there are some, and there should be more of criminality against both the Ontario government and the owners of these, especially the for-profit long-term care, because it's criminal, no doubt. Hopefully, those families will organize and do that. Um, but I'm thinking of another group, a queer group, where also healthcare is actually critical, and that's our trans population, many of whom were on the, you know, the wait list for a surgery. Um, and, and again, um, uh, Andrea, you know, you know, you were there when we brought in the tra trans equality bill under the Ontario Human Rights Code, um, Toby's Law, named after my then um, music director. Um, you know, I, I, I laughed about it after I thought if the government really knew how far reaching this was, they never would have done it because one of the, you know, reaches is to healthcare and trans folk do not get equal healthcare, nowhere close yes. in this province to people who are not, who are cisgender. Yes. So, I mean, I, I, so, and again, it's been made worse by COVID. So, you, you know, you know, surgery's off the table now. Yeah. Uh, and I can only imagine other things. Yeah. LGBT seniors in, yeah. in nursing homes are basically and, and going back into the closet because they're terrified of, of of the kind of discrimination they'll they'll face by 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 staff and and that that should not yeah. be happening. Yeah, yeah, it's very stressful. I I I, I knew a handful of people that had their surgeries uh, uh, postponed. Uh, not to mention that it's already stressful enough to even talk to a doctor. Um, I mean, I'm a medical secretary myself. Uh, my father's a gynecologist, optician. You know, he uh, he's amazing. He has like he has a lot. We have a lot of trans patients uh, as well. Um, but the system itself, the system that we actually the actual computer system we work, you know, um, we're expected to. The system is still outdated. Like you know, there's like it's it's very binary. Um, it doesn't even meet the needs of non-binary people. Um, you know, there's as as amazing as 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 as, as I've seen um, with patients. Like we have a very uh, older, you know, older. We have some older trans patients as well. Um, as great as it is, it absolutely has not gotten any better. <laughs> Yeah, and 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 I, I definitely, and that of course, is not. I mean, again, I'm sure the government of Doug Ford doesn't see this; it doesn't understand it. But that has severe mental health consequences. Absolutely, I think it's really hard for people to have this conversation that once we pass this, like you know, gender of expression, gender identity law, which is fantastic. I, you know, I was very happy when that was passed. But there's a difference between someone's identity and them transitioning. Because transitioning, I, I often feel like, you know, women, cis women are given a maternity leave, but I don't see trans people given a transition leave, where there's some funding, there's some support, where people, everyday people are taking it seriously, that are taking trans people's transition seriously, that it's not just growing your hair out, taking some pills, and bing, bang, boom, at the end of the day, it is not a traumatic experience. 
that not a lot of people understand. And, you know, I, I, I can I even get a little emotional talking about this because I myself have been transitioning for over five and a half years. And I'm, I underplay how traumatic <laughs> um, it has been. And on top of trying to get a new job and trying to like restart your life, I, there is absolutely no government support in terms of that. So transition services absolutely needs to be something in the future, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and very few places to find that. I remember even when I was in politics, which is going back three years, lots of provinces by the then liberal government about, you know, we're going to have 500 doctors will be trained across Ontario. We're going to have surgery here at Women's College, everything, access, not just one, sh you know, one place anymore. It's going to be of multiple points of access, which has proved to be really a mirage, like it's proved not to be the mm. case. Um, let's, let's move from this because you've been touching on a bunch of stuff that ultimately touch upon money. <laughs> so I want to talk about money for a minute and governments. Um, first of all, the CERB cliff that people are facing, you know, hoping that it will be um, renewed. But I mean, uh, what I find so fascinating about all of this is that governments always plead we don't have the money. Like if you talk, talk to anything, talk about trans health, talk about childcare, talk about housing, talk about education, it's always we don't have the money for it. Um, but all of a sudden, billions of dollars are available and you know, say what you will, some of it has been directed to housing, some of it's been directed to healthcare, some of it's been directed there. So the big lie has been so obviously exposed that governments always had access, certainly the federal government always had access to that money. They could always pay for it, they just chose not to. Mm. And that's not even talking about, yeah, how they could, we could have progressive taxation and the offshore bank accounts and the billionaires and the others who are profiting from the system, not even tapping that. We already see that if governments see an absolute necessity for something, they can find the money to do it. So I hope that people remember that, you know, if and when we return to normal, because there's no, ex they can't use that excuse anymore. The feds can't use that excuse anymore. Um, so I, I, again, do you think people are getting that? I mean, you think that's, I, I don't hear it coming through in any of the mainstream media messages. Um, like, where did all this money come up? What I do hear, though, is the hammer message of, and when this ends, austerity will follow, and then we're going to cut back everything. Um, so, Andrew, just weigh in about that. Yeah, I 100% I, I agree. All of a sudden, all this money's available, and all this money is, you know, can be tapped into at any time. And I, Absolutely. It was always there. Um, it was it was always a, a, a sort of a, a fund that was, you know, for for you know the the, the projects and the um, initiatives that they wanted to do, um, and and now you know we need it to help our communities. We need it to lift people up. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm really it's discouraging, but you know, I, I, as as you noted, I, I do see you know people talking about this, uh, you know, on, on social media. If I see people waking up, you know, I to use the word right, if you see people being radicalized, you know, to to critique their government and the choices and the, and the decisions that they make more than they ever had before. I really hope this continues. I really hope that we don't, you know, settle back into a complacency that we, we were before. I really hope that this is, is a sea change. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, 
I, I, I'm, I'm worried about whether it will actually translate to voting and translate to actually electing people who, who have a more um, radical and a progressive um, position. But, you know, who knows? Uh, you know, I, I, there's so much that needs to change in Canada before we can actually see the revolution translate into um, a, a non-neoliberal or conservative government. <laughs> um, you know, we need, we need, we need uh, you know, electoral reform. We need, we need to see, you know, um, more women, trans people, people of color, black and indigenous uh, people running for office and actually taking up space. Um, and, and, and certainly we need to have this more on the mainstream agenda. We need, uh, you know, we need mainstream media to be talking about this. It needs to be off social media and, and onto those panels um, that, uh, that, we, that we get so frustrated by. Yes. No, I was just thinking about how, you know, when I think of if there's money, then why are we hiring people? I mean, like, I, you know, I, I can name 10 people I know that are struggling to find a job. I mean, I know, and they're all queer, and most of them are people of color, and or black, and it's frustrating to me. It's extremely, extremely frustrating to me. I mean, as someone who lost so many clients after I transitioned. It's like, if there's money, there's government funding, and there's budgets being laid out, why is there not being budgets made to create new jobs for marginalized communities? Why is that not a priority? I do not understand. Like, we all know that social workers are absolutely in a demand right now. Counselors, so many like queer queer people in general, queer community needs more counselors, needs more therapists. And if there's the money, why are we not hiring more people? I just don't understand. Yeah. You know, we can't go back to normal, right? Like the, we hear that message over and over again that, you know, when, when things go back to normal, when things go, you know, back to the way they were, we, we can't go back to normal. The way things were was what created the foundation for this problem. The reason why we weren't prepared with, with PPE and the reason why, you know, all, all of these nursing homes and retirement homes and, and you know, are, are, are collapsing. And the reason why so many people who we were already in precarious work. We all the gig economy was already really problematic, yeah, exactly. and so we we don't we don't want to go back there, right? And you know why aren't we talking about having a four day week instead of a five day work week? You know, give people relief. Exactly. You know, give people give the give these you know companies, small businesses, big businesses, the the mechanism and the funding if they need to, if they, if that's what they need to be able to hire more people so that the the staff that are currently there aren't crippled by work and 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 burning out you know give people some relief make, make let's talk about having a four-day work week instead of a five and people don't want instant gratification now we want security young people all everyone in the country we want to have a better sense of our future yeah uh just uh weighing in and and, and andrea listening to you talk about a four-day week who uh now works in politics where it's like an eight-day week <laughs> The irony. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, again, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show here, either uh, in podcast form or on the radio. Please feel free to be a little generous with CIUT 89.5 FM. Um, Andrea earlier mentioned Democracy Now! And Democracy Now! is played every day on, um, every weekday anyway, on CIUT 89.5 FM, the only place you'll hear it on Main Street, uh, on radio, let's put it that way. Um, so, so again, this is the station that brings you stuff like this. 
um, please be generous with them. They need it. Um, and the poor station manager is basically living there 24 seven, I think, and running everything. So so just if, if nothing else to give Ken Stour, I hope you're listening, give, give Ken a break, <laughs> send a donation in. Um, I, we just have a few minutes left. Um, I just want to focus on, let's leave on an upbeat note. Um, let's talk about what we hope for Pride. It's a whole new ball game. Um, Andrea, what do you hope for Pride? This is Pride Month. Like, what's it going to look like? I still can't visualize it, but what do we hope for Pride? I mean, it won't look anything like we've ever seen. I mean, I, I think that, you know, this Pride, uh, we need to, if you aren't already active, and if you aren't already an activist, we need to become activists. Uh, we need to, you know, you know, we, we won't be celebrating. We won't be partying in the streets yeah. with glitter, unfortunately, this year. We won't be getting drunk, you know, and dancing to DJs. As much as I love doing that, uh, we won't be doing that this year. So we need to put our efforts into, into making the lives of, you know, people in poverty, black and brown people, indigenous people, and, and our friends and family, our, our queer friends and queer and trans friends and family, we need to help make their lives better by being vocal, being loud. If, 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 if you're a loud and vocal person, stand up and be vocal and loud, write letters, you know, get on social media, um, whatever it takes, whatever, whatever mechanism it takes to have, to stand up and have your voice be heard. That's what needs to happen right now. Uh, and, and, and hopefully by next year, hopefully we, we will have a vaccine or, you know, we'll have an, uh, enough of a decreased infection rate that we can maybe dance in the street again. But this year, it's it's all about being political and being active and, you know, not, and not just thinking about Canada and, and Toronto, but looking beyond our borders. You know, we, when we, we look at, you know, the, you know, 80 plus countries that still have laws against being gay, queer or trans, you know, those people can't get out right now. Like they're in refugee camps or they're, they're stuck at home um, and, and, and they're terrified. So, Keeping all of this in mind, this is Pride this year. Yeah. Yes, Adrienne. I mean, what what I would add is that, like, I think that what's what's best for the community, and I don't speak for the community, but I mean, what I've understood and learned is is learning about how to unlearn our, you know, our sort of foundation of white supremacy that we still live in, um, and to focus more on community and less on corporate, you know, less, more community, less corporate. And for us to listen, to listen more to our community and the needs of our community instead of the needs of consumerism. Yeah, um, thank you both. Uh, I, I was thinking as you were speaking that it would be really nice to see the banks that normally march in pride, let's mm. focus on those, who are so, such powerhouses in the Caribbean, among other places internationally. Mm. Canadian banks are there and they have power. What are they doing with that power in places that have laws against homosexuality, bi and transsexuality? What are they doing there? And if they're not doing something there, they shouldn't be allowed to march in pride. Um, if we're going to make, yeah. you know, take police out, let's take them out because, yeah. you know, uh, you can't get away with marching and flying your flags in pride up here and then do zero in the countries where you're a major power player in terms of money. So anyway, that's a little bit of a note. Maybe we can end there. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Radical Reverend Show. I've been talking to Canadian fashion designer, Huff Post contributor, uh, and many other things. Uh, Adrienne Wu, I'm going to be, uh, you're going to be Adrienne now. That's, just, like, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, 
<laughs> and, um, and Andrea Houston, um, of course, activist, journalist, and now, congratulations, EA to Jill Andrews. So until next time on the Radical Reverend Show, be safe, but have fun. Happy Pride. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.